Welcome to The Professor and the Hack, the Christmas edition. Nothing says ding-dong merrily on high, quite like two blokes in suits, with coffee cups filled with water, I might say. Are you not supposed to tell them that? Yeah, well, this is uh, smoke and mirrors time. The Professor, Peter Van Onselen, how lovely to see you. Compliments of the season. Nice to be here in person. You know, we, we, there's been very little of that through the last couple of years of COVID versus when we started this podcast face-to-face, even though our listeners didn't see us at the time, we at least saw each other. You're handsomer than ever, Peter. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> we should talk about politics as quickly as We should talk possible. about politics, otherwise it'll get a little bit uh, bizarre. <laughs> Look, this is the end of the year show. So 2022 is a big year. It's an election year. Give us your highs and lows. Well, I mean, the high and the low all in one is the election result depending on your partisan complexion, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I don't see myself as a partisan, but I think that the result was a high because it was time for the coalition to be turfed out of office, irrespective of whether they had had elements of a good government or not. Had they won that election, they would have gone over the 10-year mark. And I, and I haven't seen the sort of reforms we've talked about over and over again in the podcast to satisfy me over that period of time. And I think it was worth giving Labor another crack. If Labor hadn't won that election, they would have had to do a generational clean-out, I think. And it would have meant that the likes of certainly Anthony Albanese, but also Bill Shorten, possibly Chris Bowen, possibly Tony Burke, maybe even Tanya Plibersek, even though she was waiting in the wings to take over as leader if Albo had lost. There would have been, Penny Wong certainly would have been gone. I think that generation deserved another crack because the problems of the Rudd-Gillard years, in my view at least, were the problems of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and they would have taken down that whole next generation of Labor if they hadn't won that election this year to give them a chance at redemption. There's a lot to unpack there. Part of it is, could there have been any possible justification for another term of a Morrison government? The voters blame you didn't think so. Well, the, the only thing that might have justified it is if that gaffe on day one by Anthony Albanese had had a snowball effect that led to people questioning whether he was up to being Prime Talk Minister. Talk about the gaffe, because journalists copped an absolute shellacking for reporting and making too much of it. But I notice that uh, Penny Wong has had said that she looked at Alba, Penny Wong, very close to Anthony Albanese and said, basically, shape up or we are dead. So it wasn't seen as a minor thing when yeah. he dropped the number. He oh. didn't know the number. Oh, look, it was a gaffe. He didn't know the number. He didn't know two numbers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Cash rate and the unemployment rate. That's right. And it was a really powerful, bad day one gaffe, as they knew. I think there are two classifications of critics of the media over that. Those people who say that the reporting of that day one gaffe was over-reporting and was a beat-up, I think they're dead wrong and I think, frankly, their partisanship blinds them from objectivity. But I agree with critics who say that over the course of the remaining six or so weeks of the campaign that the gotcha attempt after gotcha attempt, including you know the six points of the NDIS and all the rest of it, Reporting by some sections of the media that those were big missteps by Anthony Albanese is a fair criticism. I, I think that, I, sorry, I should say the, the criticism of the reporting is fair because I think that once the travelling pack got a sniff of blood, they, uh, they, they were sort of hoping for another gaffe for the theatre of it. And that was the beat up for me. So I, I day saw, one was a real problem. Yeah, I, I sort of got an impression that, that some of the reporters out on the road, not all of them, are, are relatively young. Mm. And I got the impression that there were bosses sitting back, you know, the, the, the hideous lizards who sit and run media organisations, <laughs> all the people here at Channel 10, by the way, very nice. Not oh, yeah, lizards, that's like, the exception to the rule. Uh, absolutely. You know, issuing instructions <laughs> to the travelling report, oh, get them on this. 
Get him on that. See if he, see if he knows, you know, what the capital of Mongolia is or something mm. ludicrous to try to kick the thing along because it, it did reach the stage. What is the of capital that. of Mongolia? Ulaanbaatar, no by the way. Oh, of um, course you knew. Of course. <laughs> and by the way, the the catcher gotcha gaffy thing, the first time in the cycle it happened was against mm. Scott Morrison at the National Press Club when Andrew Clinnell of Sky News put it to Scott Morrison, what is the price of of a, um, a COVID it? test, a litre of milk and uh, a litre of petrol? I, and I actually thought he handled that quite well when he didn't know the answer because he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically knee-deep in bigger issues, oh, yeah, I'm not going to play the gotcha game, which was not as powerful as the way Adam Band did it post-Anthony Albanese's gaffe Yes. Uh, when he was at the National Press Club, but powerful all the same. Look, I, I think it's a mixture, don't you? You know, so, some media bosses do want the gotcha, and they're no doubt ringing through to the reporters. Some reporters on the campaign trail, and they don't have to be junior; they can be senior as well. Are trying to get the the moment in the sun for them. So it's a bit of a mix. But he didn't stumble the way he did on day one again. No. Had he stumbled the way he did on day one again, that might have given voters pause for thought. But it didn't happen. And in a sense, that helped confirm him, I think, for voters, that he deserves a chance. And also him catching COVID gave him a week where his team was able to shine, which was no small thing uh, in my view, because whilst Anthony Albanese did perfectly well as leader, I felt that the Labor team performed well as a collective, whereas on the Scott Morrison side, I mean, if he'd caught COVID, it just would have been a whole bunch of Zoom press conferences from his house, because who else was campaigning? Even Josh Frydenberg was bunkered down in Kuyong. Yeah, trying to save that without mm. any luck. It's true that one of the things that came out of that, and it's interesting you talk about how had Labor lost, there would have been a whole generational wipeout, is that uh, Labor had a, I think, a very strong seasoned team. It had people who'd been in government, who knew where the levers and the instruments were of power, who had become cohesive you know, the Rudd-Gillard years, the patch-ups had, had been done, the peace had been made. And the leadership rules, we've got to give credit to that. Like that, that overcame some of those cultural problems that could have engulfed Labor over all those years in opposition. What was it, nine, nine years or thereabouts? Because it brings certainty to the process. Yeah, yeah, and that's not something that Peter Dutton or the Liberals have. They have it in government. Scott Morrison changed the rules for Prime Ministers to be protected similarly to the new Labor leadership rules. But in opposition... Uh, it's a free-for-all. Now, Dutton doesn't have a threat at the moment, not because of his popularity, but rather because of a lack of alternatives. But that may not have been the case for Labor, in my view at least, over Albo's three years, much less over shortened six, if they hadn't put those rules in place. Mm. I want to get your sense of the Morrison government, because much is now being said about it. And I know that when we're reporters reporting it, you are, to a certain degree, duty-bound. You are duty-bound. In straight news reporting, you can have whatever opinions that mm. you want to do and you can write those in the right forums marked up as opinions. But in a new sense, you are required to report what the government of the day is doing, what the opposition might be doing against it or its critiques. And since the end of the Morrison government, it has been a complete free-for-all. I've never seen anything quite like it, the extent to which almost everyone says that this was an appalling government a truly appalling prime minister. He was perceived as being an awful human being, even before you then pile on all these mysterious secret ministries and all the rest of it. You know, John Hewson, of course, has travelled a long way from the days when he led the uh, the Liberal Party, or he would say he hasn't, the, the Liberal Party's mm. travelled away from it, but saying far and away the worst prime minister. Others have said the same thing. 
did we get as reporters somewhat blindsided by our responsibilities to the reporting process from being able to say this guy and the way he operates are really terrible? I don't, I don't think so. There was, there was a fair bit of that during the course of his time as Prime Minister. It's just that you are a little bit, as you mentioned, restricted on the forums by which you can do that. You know, so in opinion pieces, uh, there were plenty of journalists using their commentator opportunity to really lay into the failures of the Prime Minister, being loose with the truth or whatever else it might be, as well as the failures of the government, like we've talked about many times, not going down in enough reform paths, for example, when it was necessary. But in your straight news reporting, you know, television news packages or, or, or newspaper news stories, it's much harder to do. I mean, you've got your piece to camera where you can bring a bit of analysis in. I, I always felt like I was pretty critical of Scott Morrison. If anything, the sense that I was getting by feedback from above, and I don't mean internally at the network, I mean within sort of government and opposition was that I was pretty hard on Morrison. I think I think most journalists were, but ye- look, there's a limit to what you can say. And, and I do think that what we found out subsequently about him, particularly those ministries, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that is what shifted the markers on no one being willing to defend him. Had Scott Morrison simply lost the election without that to follow, sure, they would have been devastated. There would have been criticism for the small number of seats, the rise of the teals, uh, missteps along the way. But it wouldn't have just been stalwarts like John Howard, for example, who were prepared to defend him because that's just what John Howard does when it comes to the Liberal Party. You know, even Tony Abbott was sinking the boot in about the multiple ministries to Scott Morrison, which he might not naturally be inclined to do. That really changed it. And it also meant that his colleagues, people who in defeat might have been much more willing to defend him, lost that willingness because he dudded them in mm-hmm. secret, you know, in that last couple of years. Yeah. And, and the only other person who's perhaps willing to defend him now other than John Howard is Peter Dutton. But Peter Dutton is, is like in a hostage situation. He's got Scott Morrison as the former leader who's still in the parliament who can do untold damage to him any time if he decides to do a statement and be critical of the new leader, the, the opposition leader. So Peter Dutton is almost hostage-bound to but, be okay, somewhat so, defensive sure, of the Morrison Sure, so let's, let's play that out then. Peter Dutton says something that Scott Morrison feels offended by. What damage can Scott Morrison do against Peter Dutton well, that just, isn't going to blow back on Scott Morrison to such a degree that there is an absolute unity ticket within the Liberal Party well, to get him going? Well, there could be that too, but mutually assured destruction is more damaging for Peter Dutton than it is for Scott Morrison because Scott Morrison is already destroyed. <laughs> so Peter Dutton just can't afford that. So, for example, I mean, you know this, if, if Scott Morrison came out and criticised a policy position that Peter Dutton's taken, it doesn't matter what it is, but if he did that, even The Voice, for example, if he came out and criticised Peter Dutton, if he had raised concerns about The Voice, but it could be any policy position. It gets headlines instantly. If he starts doing interviews, suddenly Scott Morrison might be having a sympathetic interview on the 7.30 report rather than getting a mauling at the hands of Sarah Ferguson. And, you know, that just generates another round of headlines and off we go. And, yes, you know, your, your Ray Hadleys and your other conservatives, you know, Andrew Bolt, these sort of commentators, may well let Scott Morrison have it for that, but he's getting headlines and people who might be naturally critical of the stance originally taken by Peter Dutton are also then going to utilise Scott Morrison the same way that 
Malcolm Turnbull has been well utilised by critics of Scott Morrison whenever he's criticised him. And Dutton, for all his faults, and there's plenty of them, he is savvy about that. And he's decided that the lesser of evils, because there's it's a no-win situation for him, but the lesser of evils is to try and defend Scott Morrison to avoid that mutually assured destruction. Oh, it's a dirty old business, isn't it? Winners and losers, 2022. Well, why don't you go first? Let's, let's, let's hear yours. Should we do winners or losers? Let's go with winners. Well, the winners for me are playing the number one Anthony Albanese. I agree with that. Uh, he has not only won an election and brought Labor back to power, that's a huge achievement, but since then he has not simply been the person who is not Scott Morrison and therefore electable almost by default, but I think he's actually performed tremendously well. He ends the year with key promises that have been made being kept on integrity, on industrial relations. He's part of the way towards doing something on power prices, although his election promise of reducing power prices by $275 is... Where is that? It'll land somewhere. He's been really interesting as a prime minister because he has used solid processes. He does not appear to display ego. Uh, He seems interested in fixing problems and in acting methodically, but on a reasonably good timeline, you know, rapid timeline, Mm. getting a budget out of the way and getting these other things landed before the end of the year. I think it's been a pretty, as close in politics as you can get to a 10 out of 10 year. He ends with his tail up with the, the polling numbers behind him. Number two for mine is Jim Chalmers. Because he, when Shorten, as people remember, lost the election in 2019, there was a brief frisson because Chalmers put his hand up Mm. and wanted to be the leader and thought that the time was for generational change. They went with Albanese, safe, but was he going to get there? Albanese did. Chalmers is slotted into that role as treasurer really well. The numbers are complicated. He's had to get a budget up in reasonably short order. It's going to get more complicated for him. But so far, he's managed to display a a kind of a a warm empathy towards people as they start to deal with what the reality of rising mortgage rates might be and flowing through to rents and other sorts of difficulties and the power impacts on people's um, weekly finances. And he seemed to be empathetic across the brief, and he's gone pretty well. And I think Mm. what he's done is he has – it's early days – But if you were to say right now, Albanese goes under a bus, there would be fair confidence that uh, Jim Chalmers could step up more than Richard Miles, Penny Wong's in the wrong chamber, Tony Burke, not so much. Uh, You know, I I think... Liversick sideline, Chris Bowen hasn't recovered enough. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think so. I think it's been a good year for him. And he's plainly of the age at energy level to be part of Labor's future big time. And the third... Big winner, I would say, is Penny Wong. She moved immediately on getting into office to, to recalibrate our international relationships, particularly in the Asia-Pacific. She's done a superlative job at that. She's been good just in the last days on Iran, for example, introducing some of those sanctions. Uh, she is also, more importantly, behind the scenes, the key, in many ways, the key advisor and support and bulwark for Anthony Albanese. Mm. They're incredibly close. Probably Mark Butler's the only one who's who's as remotely as close. And so she holds the levers of power at a very profound level. And so far, again, she Mm. she doesn't appear to have put a foot wrong. What do you reckon? I 100% agree that Anthony Albanese has to be your first pick uh, as the winner of 2022. I don't disagree that 
both Penny Wong and, and Jim Chalmers are winners in 2022, although I would say that Jim Chalmers' victory, he wants to be careful that he doesn't seize defeat from it in 2023, uh, following on from 2022, because he's got some big challenges in front of him as treasurer, and it's going to make or break him as a follow-up. But I won't make them my other two. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of step away from the, the new government's lineup. At third place, I'll hold the anticipation for a second, at third place, I put the Teals as a collective because they outperformed expectations. They certainly outperformed my expectations initially before we started to get some polling read on just how well they might end up doing. They fell short of getting the balance of power, which I don't necessarily think strategically hurts them because that might give them more longevity in politics. And that balance of power, you assume, is coming at some point if they have longevity in politics. So because they're not a party. No, they're not so a the, party. So the balance of power itself is a, is a somewhat but that might suit thing. them. That might suit yeah, them might. because they, they will just as readily lose on issues as win. And if they can maintain that independence within somewhat of a collective, uh, I think that probably suits them. But they, uh, even if that doesn't happen and they fizzle out at the next election, I think for this year they, they come in third for me. Pipping them, though, for second place uh, is David Pocock, picking up an independent Senate position in the ACT. Now, he has to run every three years because it's the ACT, so he could easily be out on the, the, the bones of his backside in three years' time. But even if he is, he holds the balance of power in the Senate effectively because Labor and the Greens need one more vote, and he's always the most likely. I mean, I guess you know, Jackie Lambie sits there as well as just Pauline Hanson and so forth. But He's really utilised that power as well. So it's not just that he got the numbers that the Teals didn't quite get in terms of balance of power. The way he's used it to negotiate on industrial relations, to negotiate on other issues as well, he's been impressive. And he's had no liking. time to grow in the job. He's no, he has Straight hasn't. into and, the big decision. And even just winning that seat in the first place, we talk about how impressive it is that the Teals pulled off victory, which it is, but winning a Senate spot, even in somewhere like the ACT, as an independent, Bloody hard to do. In fact, more so in the ACT because they only get two senators who are up every three years. And so to knock out one of the major parties is bloody well, hard. There are no liberals in the, in the federal Senate. parliament from the ACT at lower no, house or right. the upper house. So. Yeah, because they never win the lower house ones. Yeah. And Zed Zazelja was the fellow who lost his Senate spot to David Pocock. But that is, that is hard to do as an independent. Uh, it's, it's hard enough for him to get his first preference votes above what's left of Labor's votes from getting the second Senate spot, much less then have enough combined to get over the top of Zed Zazelja. So uh, he gets my number two winner of 2022. Fantastic. Losers, over to you. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like I should let you go first again. Oh. Well, I'm pretty simple <laughs> on this one because the number one loser is plainly Scott Morrison. I'm not going to argue about that. The number two loser is Scott Morrison. <laughs> the number three loser is Scott Morrison, in my view. He would be the number one loser as someone who lost government, you know, even, even someone who was unlucky to lose it, to lose government, for it to go to the other side mm. after nearly a decade means you that, you know, you're on the loser list for the year, no doubt about that. So he's on the loser for that. He's secondly on the loser list because his own reputation has been so profoundly trashed by his own actions that it's not just that he lost office. You can have people who are who are competent operators who can lose office. But he revealed, and it has been revealed, just what a, a bully, someone who doesn't take responsibility, someone who blames other people, someone who does things that are sneaky and underhand, the, the secret ministries. Mm. Is, and that's before you go back 
to how he got to power in the first place. And we could station Malcolm Turnbull here and he'd talk <laughs> for an hour on that subject. So the fundamental way to which he's trashed his own reputation means that even if he'd won the election, but all that was now known, you'd put him on the loser list. Mm. And the third thing is, is that through his actions, both in policy terms, but also through his personal example, he has really badly damaged the Liberal Party legacy. Only 15 of the 95 broadly urban electorates in this country are Liberal Party held. That is an appalling low oh, it's extraordinary. And that is on him. It's because of the policy positions he wanted to take. It's because of his incapacity to deal with advice. He, he has jettisoned and destroyed. He probably on one level won't regret it. A, a huge chunk of the moderate elements of the, of the Liberal Party. And, and I think that the Liberal Party is profoundly weakened. Politics spins around. Things change. But as we sit here right now, it's profoundly weakened as a consequence of who Scott Morrison was and what he was as a prime minister. So for me, he's got the trifecta, three times a loser. Once, uh, twice, Lionel Richie playing in the... Uh... <laughs> no, no. See, I, I will give him the number one loser slot. And all those reasons, which I essentially agree with, are why he's far and away the biggest loser for 2022. But I'll, but I'll put them all in one rather than use up all three. I'm actually going to steal a fourth and, and, and have an honourable mention hmm. uh, who misses out. The honourable mention... Uh, is the collective of the moderates who you mentioned. I'll have them as just missing out on top three status. So many moderates lost. What's left of the moderates in the Liberal Party is is sort of Simon Birmingham and, and, and few else. And what that does to the Liberal Party is a problem as well. So it's not just all those careers that fell by the wayside to the teals as a consequence in no small part of Scott Morrison, but it's it's what's left of the concept of moderates within the Liberal Party. They're, they're an honourable mention that they don't make my top three. Third place for me has to be Christina Keneally because she lost Fowler. She didn't even want to shift to Fowler, but she was trying to play ball in a factional conundrum, which I won't go into now. But she went there, she lost, she became... She was part of the leadership group and yet she she couldn't get a Senate seat, a a winnable Senate position, which resulted in her being... But she she was a loser in a sense. She she, she never should have had to move to the lower house in in a factional stitch-up that that saw Deb O'Neill stay in the Senate as a much more junior figure than her. She should be the deputy leader of the government in the Senate right now uh, and in Cabinet, probably still retaining home affairs with an important role to play in a policy area that I know that she's passionate about, you know, having worked with her uh, in in a previous career at Sky. So she does come in at number three loser Mm -hmm. for me because missing out on government when losing your seat when coming into government is pretty hard. The second loser for me, just pipping Christina Keneally for second place, is Josh Frydenberg mm. because whilst his prize may have been the opposition leadership, his ultimate prize that he always wanted in, in his political career was the prime ministership. Now, who knows? He might make a comeback at the next election in Kuyong or somewhere else. But to go down with the ship, as it were, and with the captain of the ship when you're the first mate as treasurer and deputy liberal leader was you know, not a, a great spectacle for him and particularly finding out in the aftermath what was done to him by Scott Morrison with the Treasury portfolio, for example, at the same time that they were sharing a place at the lodge during COVID. and All those TV dinners. Yep, yep. He obviously didn't clean up the washing. And it was just, you know, it, it was an unbecoming end to his political career, if indeed it is the end of his political career. Do you think it is? I think it's more likely that it is than that it isn't mm-hmm. because I don't see what his pathway back is 
if he doesn't have another crack at Kuyong. And even though Monique Ryan does strike me as perhaps the most vulnerable, other than perhaps Kyla Tink in North Sydney, I, I'm not sure he does get her at the next election. I, I think and he's got to catch 22, Hugh, because his best chance, Josh Frydenberg's best chance of winning Kuyong is if Peter Dutton as leader does well enough that he can pick up Kuyong. In which case, why does he want to come back? Because he wants to come back to become leader. And if Peter Dutton has done so well that Josh Frydenberg wins Kuyong, he's unlikely to then take out Peter Dutton. Because if, if they're winning Kuyong, then there's a at least a reasonable prospect that Labor would be forced into it at best at minority least, Exactly, exactly. So they only win Kuyong if Peter Dutton has exceeded expectations. And if he's exceeded expectations, he'll get a second crack rather than them going to, to Josh Frydenberg. And why would a former treasurer and deputy leader in government want to come back to not be opposition leader? If, conversely, Peter Dutton does poorly, it's hard to see Josh Frydenberg winning Kuyong because it was hard enough to win last time when he didn't win it to then have Peter Dutton underperforming. I, I can't see how he bucks that trend because he couldn't buck the trend of the Scott Morrison negative yeah, and vote. S- and Scott Morrison was a negative vote in Victoria, but Peter Dutton... You can't imagine Victoria is a particularly positive vote. So, uh, yeah, that, that is a tough one. And, and like so many people, Josh Frydenberg lamenting his loyalty to a man who didn't give him much back. Yep. And, and I just thought just then another honourable mention, probably who probably deserves a mention, now my list is getting too long. Yeah, I was going to say, how long is I'm this still on be? one hand, uh, would, would be Mark McGowan. I mean, he had a pretty exceptional 2022 helping Labor to get the result that it did federally over in WA, helping launch the campaign there, them picking up four seats uh, unprecedented in the West, uh, him doing pretty... So is this on your loser list or no, your my, winner my, list? No, this is on my winner oh, list. I'm just like I'm, a I'm, winners. I'm, I'm, I'm just, sorry, yeah, I, should, I should get that right. Yeah. He's definitely not a loser. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's done very well at the state level as well. He was the most popular of all the premiers throughout. So we should probably make him the honourable mention on the winner's side. So. Yes, yeah. And certainly that was a, an amazing result. I remember as those numbers started to come through from... Western Australia, because it wasn't 100, it was 100% certain that Morrison was gone mm. by the time the WA figures came in, but certainly it wasn't clear that there was a, um, a, it was fascinating, a majority actually, government it? to, to Labor. And then when you start seeing some of those seats roll in. I was sitting there thinking, until they started rolling in, I was thinking, I can, I can see that there's no way that Labor gets its majority, but maybe, depending on how postal votes go, the Liberals come back as a minority government before the WA results came rolling in and before a few other seats solidified against the then government. Mm. But I was having flashbacks to 2019, Hugh, when we were sitting there and I was oh so certain before the count started that Labor had won the election. I was wondering, please tell me history isn't repeating itself. Yeah, remarkable. So that's 2022. 2023 is... uh, One thing we should mention out of 2022 is the recalibration of China. Mm. So, and Anthony Albanese has been the beneficiary of that. He's been a party to that, particularly at the G20 when he got that meeting with Xi Jinping. But we, we can't look at this entirely through an Australian lens. This is not China giving us special favors, but if you see it in the context of how they view it, they're warming up a little bit to the United States. They're, they're trying to, they've seen the, you know, the, the disadvantages of self-isolating. And not least because they look around and they see all these new uh, defence arrangements, alliances and understandings taking place from India through to Japan, the United States and France coming back in the Indo-Pacific, Australia mm-hmm. looking for these submarines and bombers in the Northern Territory, etc. And, you know, and so China's looked at it and said, let's just back it off a little bit. 
that I think has taken a bit of the temperature out of the immediate threats of war over Taiwan and all those other sorts of things. So that's something which has been a really big thing that's happened in 2020. How important has the way Ukraine has panned out been to that, do you think? I think tremendously important. And I think part of that is is that uh, had that been a, a clear sweep through for, for Russia, which many people thought it, it mm. might be in the early stages, the capital would fall within a matter of days and then it's just mopping up the rest. And, you know, China would have looked at that and said, well, you know, don't mess with us authoritarian states and our no limits partner over here, Vladimir Putin. Well, now Russia is isolated, loathed everywhere. People are making, you know, NATO is re-empowered. Mm. You've got Finland and Sweden coming on board as new NATO uh, partner nations in the coming weeks. We'll see that being uh, formalized, one would expect. And it's been a disaster on every level for Russia. And China's looked at it and go, why, why would you want to be that isolated? It's not that easy to win a war if you activate everyone to have a crack against you. So I think there is a, a change there from Xi Jinping. And I think that's a really important kind of end. It matters enormously to Australia. And again, Anthony Albanese and Wong have placed us where we need to be on that. And a positive end. A positive end. Uh, but 2023 mm. kicks off. So the economy is likely to get worse. People's personal economies is likely to get worse. The interest rate rises are, are still to continue. We see reports of mental health strain. Mm. 71% of people in a survey that's come out say that they feel under more financial stress, a survey that's come out in November, than they did the previous month. So this is happening in real time rapidly and will not resolve itself positively for months at least. Tough times are still ahead. Yeah, and uh, the, you know that sort of adage of it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I don't think it's even going to start getting better in 2023. I think if it's going to start getting better, it's going to be 2024. It might stop getting much worse by the end of 2023, but I don't think it starts to get better because if you look at the likely forecast, even just around something like interest rates, which really is a bit of a catalyst for where things are at. If interest rates, they won't go up in January purely because the RBA aren't meeting. But they're likely to go up in February, March, and April, possibly May, even immediately after the budget or around the time of the budget. So there's at least three or four more interest rate rises to come. And that's before accounting for unexpected further rises after that. But most economists are predicting that the Reserve Bank will at least pause for thought at that point in time. Now, if the Reserve Bank does its job and helps to bring down inflation by increasing interest rates via its one lever that it's really got, which is monetary policy. If it is successful, Hugh, it's successful because it helps to kill off economic activity, thus bringing inflation down. In other words, even if the Reserve Bank succeeds in its task, things will get tougher for people because it's... That's the design. That's the design. And the, the more catastrophic outcome is that they don't get inflation under control, but they do still nonetheless do a lot of damage to the economy and then rates keep moving up and who knows what happens then because it's, it's a bit too awful to think about, frankly, with the possibility of a wage price spiral with all the, the, the risks attached to people defaulting and then the, the cliff ending rather than the slowdown ending. So that's what is in front of us for 2023. And I don't see that improving by the end of the year. At best, it stabilises in a tough environment and more likely it gets worse because the second half of 2023 is the impact half to go with the rate rises and the 
what, what is already a tough first half. So 2024 at best is, is when things start to improve. Now, from Labor's perspective, that's you know when, when it would expect to be fronting the people potentially at the end of 2024. So it would hope to see some improvement by then, even just purely for political advantage reasons. But yeah, it's going to be a really hard year ahead. And and if it is a, a remotely tough landing, the only thing that's going for us at the moment, even as wages don't keep up with inflation, is that people at least have jobs as wages don't keep up with inflation. So it's tough, but manageable tough for, for a lot of people, even if only just. You'll start losing your job and you've got those mortgage repayments going up or your rent going up or just pure cost of living increases courtesy of energy prices and, and the goods that you buy at a supermarket. You lose that job. And you know, there's only one thing that isn't going up other than matching inflation, and that's unemployment rates yeah. because they certainly don't put them up at all. So it is, it is a great challenge, a great test. And I say great in the same way that you sometimes use awesome, you know, not something you necessarily want. It's a great challenge for a Labor government to confront these issues mm. because the Labor government in its ethos is about caring for people who are struggling. Uh, if it doesn't do that, it shouldn't be a Labor government. That's its fundamental element. And yet with that tension existing at a time when all the anticipation is that a lot of people are going to struggle and hurt and complain about that they're hurting with some degree of legitimacy, you've also got that Labor tradition from Hawke Keating years of wanting to be good economic managers and you'd say the balance has, has come up so that Labor can make a case that they are at least as good economic managers historically as anything the coalition has done. So they must find a way to look after the vulnerable and not do any obvious, easy things to try to dolly well, out cash. Well, and, and that's the problem, right? Because they would want to do some handouts to make things easier for people. And there's been a lot of handouts for a lot of years now in good economic times where it was affordable as well as through a pandemic and through a global financial crisis where it became less affordable but was still happening. And we've now hit, hit a pressure point where, you know, both politically but also more importantly economically, you know, national debt is such that it's harder to keep doing the handouts and running the high budget deficits. It's and also it's inflationary, which well, is it's, the other. It, Exactly. It's inflationary and it's at a time where higher interest bills mean higher repayment bills on government debt. So yeah. they can't do all of that. Now, that only really leaves one obvious solution for what they can do, and that is embrace reform. But reform is hard. I mean, you mentioned Hawke and Keating. They, they are the ultimate economic reformers of Australian political history and Australian economic history, but it was hard. And they only won because Hawke was incredibly charismatic. Is Anthony Albanese that charismatic? I don't know. Keating only pushed through and dragged his colleagues over the line because he had the real belief in those reforms. Does Jim Chalmers have the equivalent? I don't know. And they only convinced the Hawke cabinet of it because it was an amazing cabinet. Mm. Is this cabinet as amazing? I don't know. And even then, they only survived politically, I would argue, because a lot of the big reforms, not all of them, but a lot of them were supported from the opposition by John Howard and he dragged his side away from populist politics to support things that he thought he probably should have done as treasurer under Malcolm Fraser but didn't from the Campbell Review. Does Angus Taylor as the equivalent do that? Does Peter Dutton go for that as leader, depending on whether you're talking about Howard when he was shadow treasurer or mm. opposition leader? 
I highly doubt it. So mm. and the Hawk mix was, is Hawk different. was further helped by Joe Bielke Peterson deciding to uh, well, there you saddle go. up the horses and 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 completely blow up the 1987 election as well. So that became a gift run. So uh, everything cracked the way of Labor back then, and it's hard to see. And I think the population's different too. I think there's yeah. two things that have changed since then. One is that the reforms that Labor was putting in were similar to reforms you're seeing in the United States and the UK by Conservatives, Reagan and Thatcher. And so it was seen as if it was inevitable. People's wages went up in that period too because they got uh, separated away from, you know, unions started to crumble and people were able to negotiate wages. I remember as a journo, you came off fixed levels of graded wages to whatever you could negotiate out of the boss. And at that stage, there was money in the media and a lot of people getting big pay rises constantly going on. So, so that, those were positive elements that came on. And I just kind of have a feeling that now... The, the difficult reforms, I'm not sure the public has a mood for it, but I do think that the quiet, low-key, I think almost chifflyish tones of, of Albanese might work mm, if you do that. need to get stuff through. I, I so. agree with that. If they, can, if they can find out what they really believe in, I mean, that's part of the issue for me. I, I think both, both Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers can surprise on the upside. Particularly for me, Albo, uh, just because I, I can see him having that warmth with mm. a lot of voters. But the big question mark I have is if they're really going to discover what that reform should look like, because it is more complicated now. It was major what happened in the eighties, but it was all there in the Campbell review, mm. and it just needed to have a powerful enough government to enact it and to stick by it with a few dressings up around it. Whereas now. What constitutes the equivalent is harder to define. I mean, we don't have time in, in this discussion for this, but it is a real difficult mix around productivity, around federation reform, around some innovative new ways of taxing, around a serious debate on what amount of government we do or don't want, because I think we've moved past the era of people wanting less from government. We want more. Absolutely. And more from government requires more tax. But you have to find a way already, to tax efficiently. Yes, and you know, personal income tax is already, you know, too high as a as a as part of the mix and, and yep. set to get higher and higher. Uh, any reforms are going to have on that are going to have losers, and losers will make a lot of noise, and they've got lots of avenues to make noise. So I do think it's difficult. And just before we go, I, I do want to touch on the voice, because that was the first policy issue that came out of Al Albanese's mouth in his victory speech. And I kind of feel there's a kerfuffle over nationals not supporting it. I have a feeling as if that wobble has been resettled. We haven't heard from Dutton. He's playing both sides of it. Really, at the moment, we haven't heard a definitive position. But I'm starting to feel that it, a bit more confident that it might get up. But one thing, and that is that as 2023 proceeds, if the economy is as we've been talking about it mm. and people become very focused on bread and butter, power bills, mortgages, rent, it increases the risk that people say, why are you worrying about non-core issues that seem ethereal and out of touch and hard to understand when we're worried about these sorts of things? Mm. And I, I just fear that it might stumble in the face of an argument like that. Well, it certainly might require him to put the discussion off till 2024 at the very least, which which is its own problem, uh, which we won't get into now, but that, that's got mechanics problems well, it runs into the attached election. to it. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, even though you should be able to, all of us should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, so why can't we recognise the value of the voice, 
however it ends up being exactly crafted and go forth at the same time as tackle economic challenges, we should be able to do both. Governments certainly should be able to do both and can, but politically in that raw edge of politics, if Peter Dutton and the Liberals decide to go down the heavily politicised road of seeing an opportunity there, I agree with you, Hugh. I think that 2023 could be the year of that base political opportunity for Peter Dutton to wedge Anthony Albanese and Labor as appearing like they're not concerned about the here and now challenges that ordinary so-called Australians face. Uh, they're only concerned about niche issues uh, in in you know in the world of social justice. Albo and and Dutton is going to need any tool he can find yeah. in the kit. And in some ways the bigger risk potentially for what we just played out is if somebody, I don't know who, but if somebody other than Peter Dutton emerged who was able to galvanise uh, in a way that he might not have the popularity to do. I don't have anyone in mind. Within the Liberal Party? Within the Liberal Party, sure. Uh, and I look, I don't <laughs> have, I don't, there is no one uh, that I can see. There is no one. Well, there is no one. I mean, a- Angus Taylor no. is a myth. Uh, he, like he's just a myth, you know. Like on paper, I think he's a mythster. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's a bad guy. Um, <laughs> but, but but look, Susan Lee is the closest I can see. But but I, no, I, but no, I don't see it either. Josh Friedberg's not there, and I don't know that he would play it that way anyway. The only thing I'll, I'll end on is this, Hugh, and and I hope that viewers don't take this as you're not going to make a prediction. I'm are not going to make a prediction, but I, I hope they take this in the spirit at which it's meant. I think 2023 also, and 2024 for that matter, have to be the years of taking Peter Dutton seriously as a political force potentially because he could be a Tony Abbott in that sense. You know, like people thought Tony Abbott, me included, was unelectable until the day he won in an absolute landslide in 2013. Now, there's a lot of ifs and buts and things that have to change and happen for the same to occur for Peter Dutton. Right. Well, and you, Labor. You've got to have the Labor Party to tear itself apart. Yes, but Anthony Albanese sort of helped that helped on its that way. Too, yeah. uh, sorry, um, Tony Abbott helped Tony that Abbott. on its way. Peter Dutton, you know, he, I, don't underestimate him, would be my point. I think he's eminently beatable in a million different ways. So was Abbott, as long as you don't underestimate them. And, and if you're an Albo supporter, you would hope that having gone through the experience of being part of that sort of, if you like, leadership, broader leadership group, who did underestimate Tony Abbott, that he won't underestimate Peter I think they, my gut feeling is, is that Labor actually sees in Peter Dutton a more substantial figure than they ever saw in Tony Abbott. Yeah. And they're probably right in that because uh, Dutton, for all his mysterious ways, has engaged with a range of policy areas over quite a long time now in Parliament. So he's, he's not as visceral an attack dog as Tony Abbott, but he's, you know, he's savvy. He's not a poster child. He's hard to sell. He scares the children. Uh, He's ideological without being seen as an ideological zealot as well, which is what I think Tony Abbott was. Yes, and uh, whether he can win back where they need to win is the key question. And and a, a big question mark over his future, yeah. Well, look, I would have liked to have, and I should have done. I've only just thought of it now. I should have presented you now with a little Christmas present. But I've, I've well, it's a shame you didn't bring one because I brought you. No, no yeah. I, I, I didn't either, so I'm afraid. There we go. Well, <laughs> look, well, theoretical virtual Christmas presents and the best wishes for the season, and, uh, and we look forward to seeing you back uh, next year. Yeah, chat then and, and have a good break. And the same to you. Have a great Christmas. See you next year.
You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.